0: If you would please turn to Philippians Philippians 2:12 we'll be reading down to verse 18 You also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we we pray that you would work in us through your divinely inspired word. God, help me to work out my salvation as I preach what you have commanded me to preach. And as I also aim to put into practice the very word that you're asking me to preach. I pray, Lord, that you would help my brothers and sisters also to work out their salvation, not only as they listen to your word, but that they may also respond and apply your word. So we pray that you would do these things through your Holy Spirit who abides in us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. People can experience a transformation of their life for many different reasons. It could be a life-changing event. It could be something they've read in a book, perhaps. Maybe somebody coming to the end of themselves. Maybe it's in order to try to avoid something, a bad outcome. Maybe it's kind of an incentive. It's something that you're looking forward to that kind of changes your present. We spent the last couple weeks... Looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, talking about the person of Christ, but also talking about the humility of Jesus Christ and just everything that Jesus had given up in order to purchase your redemption and my redemption. He's giving up the status, honor, majesty, glory, not giving up his divinity, By giving up all those things, by coming into the world, being born of a virgin, submitting to earthly parents, spending his three years of his life in ministry, engaging with people, discipling these 12 men, ultimately leading to a trial and crucifixion and death and burial and a resurrection, all so that you and I might receive forgiveness of sins, might receive eternal life with God. In a relationship with our heavenly Creator, right? For those who follow Jesus Christ, they experience something much more than somebody can experience from a life-altering event, or just from sheer effort to try to change one's life. Why well, we experience what the Bible calls a a regeneration, a second birth. Right? This is what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John in John chapter three. That on uh, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But that's the kind of transformation that we experience when we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are born again, that we receive a new heart. And although that's not the point of Philippians two twelve eighteen, 18, it does speak to this particular topic of conversion, a turning away from sin and a turning to Jesus Christ. Really, the passage reminds us of the miracle of the gospel. that The person who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ is given an entirely new heart. And so with that, my believers are called to work out their salvation. Every person is running a sort of race. After different goals or running for different purposes, right, For the Christian, it's no different. We're all running a race. But as we're running a race, or this race in the Christian life, we're giving this powerful fuel for the race that really nobody else has apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, again, verse 12 tells us, therefore, as my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so there's an expectation, right, that the church will remain obedient, that they would give their lives to walking in obedience. And this comes in the heels of Philippians two to eleven, where we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus showing this example of humility and coming down. To save us. And that this really is kind of part of what fuels us to remain obedient unto God. And this idea of absence. Paul says, work out your salvation or be obedient, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Kind of has this idea, I think, of one of the parables in the Gospels, where the servants are expected to work while the master is away, not knowing when the master is going to return. They're still called to continue about their work, to continue to do their work, not knowing when the master is going to return. Where it's the same for us, that we are called to work out this salvation. We're called to continue to live our lives of obedience unto God, a God who is all-seeing, but also a God who will one day return, right? And our prayer and hope and His expectation is, that he finds us working. Showing ourselves to be good stewards of the time and the resources that have been given to us. And so we're called to work out our salvation. Norse doesn't say, work for your salvation. This isn't something that we work for. It's not something that we're trying to achieve, something we're trying to acquire. But the idea is that you're working out something that you already have. It's like the human body has muscles, right? There's nobody who doesn't really have muscles. It's a matter of whether you use them or not. Christians are called to work out the salvation that they already have in Jesus Christ. And why is this working out of our salvation even necessary? One part is because of the humility that we see in Jesus Christ, in Philippians 2, 5-11, as an incentive to continue in obedience. But I really like 2 Peter 1, verse 3, where it says, His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let me pause right there. That's essentially giving us the gospel in a way and the benefits that we receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continues. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I mean, there's a powerful incentive to work out our salvation. Not only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they keep you from falling. And notice the intentional effort. He says, make every effort. Right, practice these qualities. Right, the Christian life is not a passive thing. It's a very much a proactive life. We're called to work out our salvation. And this isn't strange or common only to the New Testament. We see this in the Old, in the Old Testament as well, not just the New. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Leviticus 11.45, God calls his people to be holy, not only because they should be, but because God is holy, but also because God rescued them. Right? In the Bible, we see this pattern of revelation and response. God reveals, and the people are called to respond. God reveals himself to Abraham and calls him out of his place to go, and Abraham responds by, uh, by responding, by following the call. His people of Israel, enslaved in Egypt, God reveals himself to them as the God who will save them, and as the God who does save them powerfully, and then they are called to respond by having no other gods before Yahweh, by following his commandments. God reveals himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross for the sins of his people. And in response, people are called to believe and repent. And so that's the pattern. God reveals and we respond. And we continue to respond, right? We respond every day by continuing to live in faith, exercising our faith, working out our salvation, following God, doing the things that are pleasing to the Lord. So we continue to respond to his revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The passage says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's kind of interesting because nobody likes to be afraid. It sounds frightful, to think of the fact that we're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But it's not exactly what we might think it means. In Mark 5:33, the story of Jesus surrounded by so many crowds as he's trying to get to a particular place. He's surrounded by a whole bunch of people, and then there's a woman who has had a discharge for many years who says to herself, If I can just touch garment of his robe, then I will be healed. And she reaches out, touches his robe, and she's instantly healed. And all of a sudden, Jesus notices and he starts asking, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. (laughs) You're surrounded by a bunch of people. And Jesus said, no, I perceive that power came out of me. Who touched me? And the woman seems to have heard that Jesus is questioning who touched him. And it says, In that story that the woman responded in fear and trembling. She came to Jesus and it tells us that she disclosed everything. So it's interesting that she didn't experience a fear and trembling that led her to run away from Jesus in the opposite direction. Let me get away from this guy as far away as possible. Instead she experienced a fear and trembling that actually compelled her to draw near to Jesus and confess disclose everything that she had been thinking and everything that had happened. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So when, we're talk, when the pastor says right here that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not a fear and trembling that leads us away from Jesus Christ, but actually leads us to Jesus Christ. It's a fear and trembling that causes us to trust in the Lord. The kind of fear and trembling that you perhaps have experienced if you've ever cheated somebody or lied to them and out of and nobody has told you to or compelled you to but maybe just your own guilty conscience just compelled you to go to that person and be honest and upfront and say what actually happened or tell the truth or it's like a child that might feel bad about lying to his mom or dad And nobody compels the child to, but just out of a guilty conscience, goes to the parent, trusting that the parents are not going to be so upset and cast the child away. But it's a trusting that you're still going to a parent that still loves them. The kind of fear and trembling that we're called to have as we work out this salvation, a reverence for God that still draws near to the Lord, the sense of trust, knowing that God will not cast us away, even when we do sin. And so we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The passage says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, well, it's such a peculiar passage because it's, right, there's, there's man's effort and God's effort. Both are working together, trying to achieve the same thing. And So how, does this, how do we wrap our minds around this fact that we are working out our salvation, but God is also working on us to work out our salvation? So a few things to keep in mind as we're trying to understand this passage. I mentioned earlier, first thing is that it really speaks to the topic of of conversion. It's not the main point of the passage, but it really speaks to it. And the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that an unbeliever were not, will not work out his salvation because he, has, because he has no salvation to work out. And if he thinks he has a salvation to work out, he does work it out, but not in a manner that pleases the Lord, but in a manner through which he thinks that is a way of maintaining his salvation through sheer will and effort, or as an attempt to acquire salvation through sheer will and effort and good works. Whereas the believer who has experienced the second birth, who's been given a new heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ, works out their salvation because they already have it and they do it in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord and they ultimately want to please the Lord. Second, as we try to understand this passage, it's helpful to understand some things about ourselves as human beings. That is that in any action, there are two elements that are, or two departments that are necessary to, in order to fulfill that action or follow through in that action. That is will and power. I, can have the, I might have the desire or the will to build a deck in my house, but I have no power to do so. Or if I have no skills to do so, I'm not going to build one because I don't know how to. Or I might have all the skills and the material and the, and the tools necessary to build a deck, but I may not have the desire to build a deck. Or I might have the will or desire to build a deck, but I have a competing desire that overrides that desire. There might be a desire for laziness. Another thing to keep in mind is that the heart and the flesh are still sinful. But yes, we've received a new heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not every area of our lives has been completely erased of all sin. There's still a residual or a lingering sin in our hearts. And as long as there is a residual sin in our hearts, we will have these competing wills. Whether there's a will to once to please the Lord at the same time, there's times where we struggle because we have a will to do our own thing, to do our own desires or fulfill our own desires. And so we're called to work out our salvation, for it's God who's working in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the desire to please the Lord initially comes from God. It comes from the new heart that you have received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any desire that you have to obey the Lord, to work out your salvation, even to come here on a Sunday morning, comes from the Lord. So it compels you to get up in the morning and get dressed, and drive to come here. But sometimes the will is lacking, right? And sometimes you get up anyway and do what you got to do to come here because lack of will is not an excuse, right? It's not an excuse to sin, or not, it's not an excuse to get done what needs to get done. And sometimes, right, we might have. We've all experienced those days when the day it's just wonderful. You wake up, you don't hit the snooze button. You just, you just, you just up when the alarm goes off. You spend time with the Lord in prayer, meditation, in the Word, reading the Word. You go about the rest of your day. It's a wonderful day. You could not have gone any better. And then the next day, you wake up and you're like hitting the snooze button like ten times. It is. Absolute chore to get into the word. You don't pray. It's just like a completely different day than there was the day before, and there's no explanation for it. Sometimes that's part of it's sin. Sin just leads us to be terribly inconsistent. But if we wake up one day not having this incredible and powerful will to live our lives unto the Lord, it is not on the fault of God. The fault lies on you and me. Because again, just because there isn't a will, or even even if it's just a small will, to do what pleases the Lord, and a stronger will to do our own will, personal will, it's not an excuse to not obey the Lord. So God is working in us as we also work out our salvation. It's not a perfect illustration, but one thing I can think of is like a car and a driver. The the car is useless. The car is meaningless unless you have a driver behind the wheel to accelerate, to brake, to steer the car. Whereas like the engine, you might compare it to the, the new heart that we receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what fuels us with the gospel. It's what drives us to live out our salvation in an an order to please the Lord. It's given the new heart but it is also up to us to put that heart into action because the Lord will not make us do anything. He gives the desire and it's up to us to follow through with the desire. It's kind of like what Paul experienced in Romans seven these competing wills. He says, "I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but at the same time I experience this this other law that is competing with this delight that I have in the law of God." And so we are called to work out our salvation. And from Philippians 1 27, we see all these different imperatives of what it means to work out the salvation, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, maintaining unity, looking out for the interests of others, counting others more significant than ourselves. The encouraging thing also about this particular passage is that like, God is actually working in you. Like, God works every single day without ceasing and maintaining everything that He's created. And nothing in this passage or any other passage in the entire Bible indicates to us or tells us or teaches us that God ceases or takes a pause from working in the life of a believer. So even as you're sitting right now, God is working in you. So as He is working in us, we are also called to work out our salvation because we already have this salvation. And so we receive this fuel for the Christian race, for the God who works in us to work out our salvation for his good pleasure. Now in this race, there's also some instructions for the race. Verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So that you may be blameless, blameless, innocent, without blemish. I mean, it's a kind of a high standard. I mean, how do you even achieve that standard? And the fact is that you can't achieve this standard. That's perfection. But we can't achieve perfection. The Bible does not teach that we can achieve perfection. But that's not what the passage is calling us to. Luke chapter 1 is a story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist. Now the author, Luke, tells us that Zechariah and his wife were blameless in all the commandments and statutes of God. Now, I don't think that means that they kept the laws and the statutes and the commandments of God without fail, or rather, I think it means that they had a reputation of consistently keeping the commandments of the Lord. I mean, contrast that to the Pharisees, right, who kept the law pretty zealously, but never once does it say does it describe them as being blameless in all the commandments and statutes of God. I think in part because as we read in the Gospels, it's that they had a terrible will. Had wrong motives, wrong desires. Whereas Zechariah and his wife did not. So the word is telling us that there should be a distinction between us and the rest of the twisted and crooked world. And it might not seem all that difficult. Right if you are a follower of Christ, if you read your Bible on a regular basis, if you pray on a regular basis, I mean those things alone already distinguishes you from the rest of the world If like you add to those other things like not avoiding lying, cheating, stealing, remaining faithful to your spouse, all those things are wonderful good, and you might do all those things and I hope that and pray that you do, but I pray and hope that you do them from the right heart but the passage actually gets, I think, a little bit more personal. Maybe not personal is not the right word, but a little more particular. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let's talk about disputing first. In other words, not having a character that is argumentative or that likes to dispute. Some people like to dispute just for the sake of disputing or arguing even among Christians, but it's, but it's kind of much broader than that. So let's say, for example, like for next weekend and the spring workday, right? So let's say you're giving a particular task, hey, can you mow the lawn? Somebody who might dispute might say, actually, I don't think it really needs mowing. Can I go do something else? Or can I do this? Or, or whatever. Right, It's kind of being asked perhaps like to do something, but then you kind of find ways to not do it or rather do things your own way. It's kind of a way of disputing instead of just kind of accepting the task that's given to you. Remember, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, the humility of Jesus Christ, a humble person. Essentially what the passage is telling us is that through the example of Jesus Christ, that a humble person is not given to dispute, receives the task, doesn't try to be Trying to be argumentative about it, doesn't try to persuade the person of another way of doing it, it just accepts that the person has thought it through, has carefully considered, and that this is the task, and I humbly accept without being argumentative about it or disputing about it. We do not dispute. But then we have the other one. Don't grumble. In other words, don't complain. Do all things without grumbling. It doesn't say do some things or do most things without grumbling. No, it says do all things without grumbling. You know that the, most, that the hardest passages in all the Bible are not the difficult to understand passages. It's not the passages that are just pregnant with so much doctrine and so much theology, the most difficult passages in all the Bible are the imperatives, are the commands, such as do all things without grumbling, without complaining. I was talking to somebody about this very passage recently, and uh, this person said that, that, that she, and I think a few others, had at some point made a commitment like for an entire week to not complain about anything. I mean, you might as well stop breathing. I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly, incredibly hard to not complain. In fact, I, as I was reading this passage, studying this passage, I realized just how much I complain. And I complain a lot. I mean, I complain almost every time I take out my garbage and put it into another garbage bag because the town of Dover tells me to put it into another garbage bag. which I have to pay $40 every time to get a new roll of bags. I complain when I have to fill up my gas tank more than once a week. I complain when my children are bickering and arguing with one another as if I should be expecting that they should be perfectly obedient and behaving every single time. But this is a hard... (laughs) I don't know about you, but this is, I find, this is really, really hard to not grumble or complain about anything. I, don't, how, I, don't, I wonder how you're doing. Some of you might be leaving here today and just wishing that this passage wasn't in the Bible. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That is really, really hard. And why do we complain and grumble? Is it not because we want to do things our own way? Why do we complain and grumble? Is it not because it's in, which is in, being inconvenienced? Is it not because we are being self-centered? Isn't not Isn't it because we want to do our own thing in our own way in our own time? Right. It's it's rooted in pride. Complaining is rooted in selfishness. This is why Philippians 2 5 to 11 came before this passage. Because this is an incentive to stop complaining. Because not complaining and not grumbling is a mark of genuine humility. And if you're struggling with complaining and grumbling, like I am, then you and I still have some growing to do in our humility. And Maybe, maybe for you, as it is for me, maybe it's become something so normal, right, that you just kind of accept. The Bible actually says, no, do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's like an imperative, which means to break the command is a sin. I mean, I was floored by that, realizing that I am sinning every time I'm complaining. When I should be thankful that I have two children who do most of the time play together pretty well and are close enough to each other that they can, that they do bicker and argue. I should be thankful right, that the Lord has provided to put gas in the tank in order to help provide for my family, to run errands, and to see people because people matter more than how much money I spend in gas. I should be happy and thankful that even I have money to buy more trash bags. Still trying to figure that one out. You might think, is it really that bad? Is it that bad to grumble and complain? Well, it is, at least for one reason, because it's in the Bible. But Matthew chapter 20 had the story of a master who goes out and finds these people, these men who are not doing anything, and he invites them to come and work. Come work in my field, and I'll pay you a day's wage. And he keeps going hour after hour after hour, finding all these people who are without work. Come and work. Come and work. I'll give you a day's wage. And then when it comes to the end of the day to pay up, He pays them all the same wage and then what happens? The guy who's been working eight hours complains because, hey, how come the guy who's been working one hour receives the same wage that I am? And then the master responds by saying, we agreed that you would work for a day's wage, or are you begrudging my generosity? When we complain and grumble, it is in a way begrudging the heavenly master's generosity. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse nine, says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Speaking about the Israelites. Wandering in the wilderness, complaining that they didn't have all that they wanted, all that, all that they had in, back in Egypt. Grumbled and complained about Moses, God's leader, and what happened. God killed him. And thank the Lord that he's not responding in that way today, because I would have been dead a long time ago. But it speaks to the seriousness, at least, of complaining and Grumbling. You see, we are called to be blameless in every area of our lives. We're not calling for perfection, but is your character one of blamelessness, of innocence? Is there a distinction between you and the rest of the crooked, crooked and twisted generation? So, that if the world should speak ill of us, let, it, let them not judge us and point the finger because we are a bunch of Christians who are complaining and grumbling all the time. Or because we are divisive instead of united, or because we are selfish instead of looking to the interests of others. Whereas, if the world should speak ill of us, let it be on baseless accusations. If the world should hate us and even persecute us, then let it be for righteousness' sake. That's what the Bible says. Right, Jesus tells us to expect the hatred of the world. Because, but it should be because of our righteousness. I don't know who coined the term, but somebody once said, Haters going to hate. If they're going to hate, well then let them hate us for righteousness and not for unrighteousness. And so we work out this salvation and we do all these things, we do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the passage gives us a manner by which we do these things. And that is by holding on to the faith without wavering, without compromising. It's kind of the same thing as It said in verse 127 of Philippians, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are to hold on to the faith, be grounded in the faith, keep the faith, keep the gospel central to our lives because the moment that we loosen our grip on the gospel is the moment that we begin to descend into something that isn't Christianity. One Presbyterian minister, J. Gresham Machen, wrote, a book on this very topic of Christianity and liberalism. And it's not this, this uh, profound conclusion that he came to, but it is a right conclusion that he came to, and that is that Christianity is not the same as liberalism. There are many Christians right, who do not believe in the fundamentals of the Gospels, who are lax, and the obedience and the commandments that the scriptures prescribe to us. And Machin would say, that's not, a, that's not the same religion. That's a different religion. We don't worship the same God. So we have to hold on to the faith. And this is primary. If we're going to do all things without grumbling, look to each other's interests, walk in humility, then it begins by holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the passage concludes. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul had a concern for laboring in vain. We see this in several places in his letters. It is not a concern for his own salvation that he will lose it. The man man was assured of his own salvation, but he had a concern of of losing the prize that comes through the churches running and enduring and persevering to the very end. He had a concern that the churches would be led astray by false doctrine, which is a concern today. He had a concern that churches would abandon the faith because of affliction, which is a concern today as well. And so he aims to run his life and to do all things for the sake of God's church, to encourage them. Which, by the way, he's following the example of the one who ran the race before him, and that is Jesus Christ. So he has this concern for Christians, for churches. And so he made efforts to write them letters, to send others to encourage the churches. He paid personal visits to churches in order to encourage them. So in the same way, we also ought to show the same concern for one another through exhortation, through encouragement, through prayer, through regular fellowship and meeting with the saints. Every time we come here on Sunday mornings, every time you get together in a context of, uh, of a small group or having lunch with another person, it's another way that you are showing concern for another brother or sister and encouraging that person to continue to persevere and to hold on to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's what we're here for. It's what we're here to do. This is how we show concern for one another. and This is also how we work out our salvation as well. We work out our own salvation by being focused on others and encouraging the saints, walking with them in their joys, in their trials, in their suffering, praying with and for them. And it's how we essentially run the race honorably and run the race well. So then, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure.